welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Okay, welcome back to another episode of The Note Doctors. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Lee Van Handel. Jen, can you tell us a little bit more about Lee? Absolutely. I'm going to read for you the bio that Lee sent us. Lee Van Handel is an associate professor of music theory at the University of British Columbia. Prior to UBC, she taught at Michigan State University for 15 years. Her primary research areas are music cognition, music theory pedagogy, the relationship between music and language, computer-assisted research, and how those things all relate to one another. She's done stuff and published things, most recently as editor and contributor to the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, published in 2020. We have a great time talking with Lee. You're going to love this conversation, so tune in now. I basically just realized that we we need to talk about these things. We need to talk about the fact that a lot of people have the exact same feelings. You know, the uh, I don't really know what I'm doing. They're going to find out I'm a fraud. You know, I I get nervous walking into every single class, especially on the first day, because like I don't know what's facing me and I don't know if I'm going to have that student who stands up in the back and finally says, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a fraud. And, <laughs> you know, so just like shining a light on that, basically. So today, our very special guest is Dr. Lee Van Handel. So we're so pleased to have you on our podcast for today. And we always like to ask uh, our guests, you know, what was it that got you started into music theory? What got you into that? Was it an early childhood fascination with tweed <laughs> or uh, jackets <laughs> with patches on it? What, what was it? Was it something other than that, perhaps? Um. Yeah, it's actually a sort of interesting story. Um, I, okay, I loved music, obviously. And uh, when I went to college, I actually started off in genetic engineering and <laughs> realized that I missed music way too much. And so I switched into music halfway through the year. And this was at Ohio State. Um, and um, I didn't know what you could do in music. Like I thought it was just performance or music education. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't really want to perform. So I, I guess I'll do music ed. And, you know, I also had it in my head. Like, I don't really want to teach elementary school because my mom was an elementary school teacher. <laughs> and, you know, so I was like, okay, you know, maybe I can do like high school and I don't really want to do marching band, but I guess I'll have to. And <laughs> I relate to all of that. Yeah. Yep, so, me too. I mean, bless the people who do it. That's, yes. what, you know, having gone totally. through that degree program, that's what I can say. So I yes. went into I went into music ed and then um, midway through, I think my third year, I had a really bad field teaching experience mm. and mm. I went to go talk to my advisor and it turned out my advisor was on leave 
And I had been reassigned to this woman who I'd never met before, whose name was Anne Blombach. And so I went into Anne's office and I was crying and I literally crying. And I was like, I, I don't know if I want to do music ed. I'm a junior now. What do I do? And she sort of looks at me and she goes, um, your name actually came up in the theory area meetings the other day. <laughs> because you're taking like advanced theory courses and graduate courses in theory why exactly and i was like well they sounded like fun and <laughs> <laughs> And, and she like she sort of leans back and looks at me and she goes, well, you know, it's possible to do music theory instead of music ed. And I was like, wait, you can be a music theory major? And she's yes, yes, you can. And I was like, what would I do with that? <laughs> Logical question. <laughs> and she just, you know, once again, she sort of looks at me and goes, how do you think I got here? And I'm like, oh, 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 wait, wait. I could teach like at the college level and I could teach like theory stuff. That sounds really cool. How do I do that? So the I've and I've told Anne this story and we've talked about it many times. Uh, Anne Blombach is the reason I'm a music theorist, basically. That's mm -hmm. that's how it started. Um, Anne, of course, is the woman who was behind McGamut for years and years and years and years. And so I worked with her for a couple of years at Ohio State, like, and I learned programming with her and wow. I, you know, I learned like the basics of pedagogy with her. So really, she is my, she is the reason I'm who I am, I think. And, you know, so I was really, really fortunate to be able to work with her. Um, and then I, then it just, it took, I, you know, <laughs> I, I was like, this is fun. I'm going to keep doing this. And so uh, Stony Brook for my master's degree. Um, and I was really, really fortunate that uh, Bob Yerdigan was at Stony Brook the years I was there. Um, this was right before he went to Northwestern. Um, and then I ended up at Stanford for my PhD, which is a little bit of an unusual choice um there was a boy involved we were trying to get in the same location and you know and um the degree took the boy didn't that all <laughs> that all is fine um and um but you know again i got really lucky at stanford because while i was at stanford david huron was there uh, as a visiting scholar. And so I got to work with him and I got, um, I was able to like go take classes in linguistics and art history and all kinds of things, you know, and of course Stanford is, has amazing people in like every discipline. So I got to sort of explore a lot of, a lot of things and that all, I mean, it worked, you know, I, it's, it's not a path I would recommend to anyone else, honestly, because Stanford <laughs> isn't known for their theory program, but I was, I was really lucky that I was able to make it, to make it work. And, you know, and then I was really lucky that people were willing to take a chance on hiring me out of a program that, you know, technically wasn't a theory program. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, here we are. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like you've made some good choices. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
I, yeah. I there's a lot of luck involved I think though mm -hmm. I mean mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. I didn't I I didn't really know about music cognition even though I was at Ohio State which was one of the birthplaces of music mm -hmm. cognition and had yep. David Butler there and you know and I found out about it later and I was like oh why didn't I take advantage of that um and then you know, I went to Stony Brook and Yerdigan happened to be there and Stanford and Huron happened to be there. So I got really lucky along the way. And I also got a lot of support from from wonderful people who helped who mm -hmm. helped me get where I where I got. So Yeah, it's amazing how many people when you hear their story, they almost always talk about certain mentors that really mm -hmm. helped them along the way. It's rare that somebody has you know, kind of done it, quote unquote, on their own. I mean, that really right. doesn't exist. You have mentors that are really crucial to your to your development in almost yeah. every case. So that's really cool. And, you know, so I mean, those people aren't the only ones. You know, there's I got to work with Judy Lockhead when I was at, at Stony Brook. And um, there, I'm going to forget people. and I'm going to feel bad if I don't mention every <laughs> single person I've worked with. So I'm going to stop there. But, you know, I've I've been really fortunate. Yeah. Well, speaking of mentoring, I think a really neat thing that um, we found kind of doing research and things prepping for this interview was your your Ask Dr. Van blog, yes. where you ask, you're, you're kind of like um, an advice columnist for theory, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, like middle school or high school students email you with their, they're doing kind of research projects and they mm -hmm. find you and you respond on your on your uh, website. And so can you talk a little bit about how that even happens and <laughs> and about kind of the the things you talk about and or write about? Um, yeah, I, I started getting emails from students, at, you know, middle school, high school, whatever, who were doing research projects on something about music. And they started emailing me these questions. And you know, even though I said I didn't want to teach that age, I still, you know, am sympathetic to people who are looking for <laughs> who are that age. And um, so I would answer the questions. And it, it kind of started because one day, like, I answered a question for someone. And then like, three days later, I got the same question from someone else. <laughs> and I was sort of like, you know, not complaining, but I was sort of like, you know, oh, my God, you know, I wish I could just post these and then they would be available for people to look at so I wouldn't have to like, you know, rewrite the whole thing. And of course, I don't have to rewrite it. I could copy paste. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but my husband was like, well, why don't you? And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. Um, and, you know, this was around, well, this was when SMT started talking about like outreach and engagement. And this mm -hmm. was a big thing for the Society for Music Perception and Cognition at the time also. And so I was like, wait, this is like technically outreach and engagement because, you know, people can find this and can get questions answered or can email me and ask things. So I started the blog and it, you know, I, I get questions every so often it's I haven't updated it recently because I haven't gotten any questions but um it's it it's kind of fun too because sometimes it turns into a conversation with the students mm -hmm. and you know like I'll 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 respond and I'll give them some information and then they'll go oh wait no tell me more about this and mm -hmm. it sort of turns into a fun thing and I just I don't know I kind of I enjoy doing it yeah do you have kind of a favorite question that has come up 
that you've answered on the blog? Huh. I sort of like the one about why Stairway to Heaven is the best song ever. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, Loaded let's hear it. Question. Let's hear it. <laughs> You know, and of course, like, and that one was kind of funny because you sort of have to figure out how do I be diplomatic about this, you know, and how do I, you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, you know, and I'm like, okay, so Stairway to Heaven is the best song ever is not exactly a thesis. Like, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's great. You know, and I, so I think I ended up talking about like, generic stuff like uh tension and resolution and dissonance and consonance and mm -hmm. you know talking about like giving some examples you know in that song of places where those things happen and how those things are interesting to us when we're listening to it but i don't i hope that that student did not come away from that conversation thinking that i was justifying the thesis <laughs> <laughs> Because I was really trying to say, you know, this is how music works. And a lot of music has these things. So, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so in the middle of this absolutely insane year that was 2020 and seems to be continuing into 2021, you actually started a totally new job. So can you tell us about that? And uh, are you teaching online, face to face, all of those things? Yeah. Um, I, I never go halfway with anything. If I'm, if, you know, if, if I'm going to do something ridiculous, I am going to go full ridiculous and I'm going to make an inner, an, an international move during a pandemic is what's yeah. going to happen. Um, so, yeah. So I'd been at Michigan state for 15 years. Um, this job came available at UBC and I couldn't pass up the opportunity. So applied, interviewed, got the job. And, you know, and of course, by the time I got the job, we were shut down and in the pandemic. So I wasn't actually sure we were going to be able to make it. Like I, you know, there was no guarantee that we were going to be allowed to cross the border, any of that stuff. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so we got really fortunate everything about like every physical thing about the move went as well as it possibly could have and we got here and got settled um ubc is entirely online um so teaching online um i mean i, I suspect it's like a lot of universities where things like um ensembles are meeting in like small ensembles are meeting in person or things mm -hmm. like that but uh academic classes are meeting online um so i will say that um my new colleagues are absolutely wonderful um but i haven't met most of them <laughs> like in person yeah. you know i uh i'm in my apartment and i walk from the bedroom to the room that is my office and i teach from there and then i walk out into the living room and i'm home again and it's um it's a little isolating just because you know i i miss the hallway conversations i miss you know meeting meeting my new colleagues figuring the hallway conversations are sort of where you figure out where the bodies are buried you yep. know and, <laughs> and and how things <laughs> and how so things true. really work um and so I, I i miss that interaction um 
you know, but that being said, everyone has been fantastic. Everyone's been really welcoming. It's also weird that I've been teaching an entire cohort of students that I've never met. Mm. Um, and you know, I didn't, I didn't really know like what level to expect or like where to pitch a graduate class or where to pitch to undergraduates. You know, it was sort of, there was a lot of flying blind in there and it was, it was, it was weird, but I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving UBC. I'm loving Vancouver. Um, you know, it's, it's been a really good move overall. Um, it's just, I wouldn't recommend an international move during a pandemic to anyone. <laughs> it was a little stressful. I would imagine so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, I think one of the other things you did this year uh, was present an SMT talk uh, on the subject of imposter syndrome, and I was really intrigued by that as well. Uh, if you could, I know some some of our listeners surely were, were at the talk, and I think we all three were at the talk as well, but if you could just give us a little bit of a summary of, of what you talked about and kind of how that's impacted what, what you do in your teaching. Oh, jeepers. Um I gave the talk initially at Michigan State because I was asked to present at a uh, sort of a women in music uh, seminar series at the at the College of Music there. And um, I just I've recently realized that there's a lot of things that we don't talk about. You know, we don't we don't mm -hmm. talk about things like imposter syndrome. We don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about, you know, as a grad student, you're just expected to keep paddling under the surface, but look really calm as you're going, you know, along. And so I realized that having someone talk about imposter syndrome because you know once you get people talking about it everyone goes you know oh my god i felt like that yeah. and mm -hmm. um i just i felt like it was really important so i gave the talk there um and then i had mentioned it to some people at smt and then i was invited to do it again at the at I think it was an informatics session. I have no idea why right. it was on an informatics session, but there you go. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I basically just realized that we, we need to talk about these things. We need to talk about the fact that a lot of people have the exact same feelings. You know, the, uh, I don't really know what I'm doing. They're going to find out I'm a fraud. You know, I, I get nervous walking into every single class, especially on the first day, because mm -hmm. like, I don't know what's facing me. And I don't know if I'm going to have that student who stands up in the back and finally says, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a fraud. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and so, so just like shining a light on that, basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I, I just, I, I had so many people come up to me afterwards and either say, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to hear somebody talk about this. I had people emailing me saying, I didn't know there was a word. I didn't know there was mm. a thing like, you know, that this was a thing that other people felt. I thought like it was just me. Um, and, you know, knowing that other people, have those same thoughts and feelings helps in some way, I think, you know, mm -hmm. 
I remember finding out, I won't mention names, but a very prominent theorist, those all are capital letters, um, one time confided in me that they felt the same way. Mm. And I was like, what, you, no, no, you're not, you know, <laughs> you're not a fraud. There's no way you're a fraud. Right. You know, I'm the fraud. <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? And, you know, but, but honestly, hearing somebody that I look up to, that I respect say that made me go, oh, okay, wait, you know, this is, this is a little more normal than I make it out to be, I think. Mm -hmm. So I just, I feel like it's an important thing to talk about. I agree. I, I think so too. Yeah. I remember being my, it was my first semester of my master's in music theory, which was at North Texas University of North Texas. And um, I went to, we were all encouraged to join the graduate association for musicologists and theorists. And so I went to that very first meeting and it was like a meet and greet with coffee or something kind of meeting and we were all standing around drinking our coffee and someone came up to me and asked me what my opinion was about late Beethoven string quartet harmony and I was like it's oh. pretty <laughs> you know I mean at this point I'm, it's I'm a weird really, initiation right. yeah I was yeah. like 22 years old right right fresh out of undergrad and uh, I have no idea what I actually said in response to that but what I do remember is that I got in the car and on the drive home, I called my undergraduate mentor at slash music theory professor and said, what what did I get myself into? I'm never going to be able to do this. What on earth were they even talking to me about? You know, I think it's important for everyone to know, like at, at various stages, including the one I'm in right now, there's things I don't know. Yeah, there's just stuff that isn't my specialty. And then there are things that I'm you know, that I do very well. And that's true for everyone. And yeah. we all have moments of feeling like how on earth did I get here and who entrusted me with this job? <laughs> I, I had such a similar experience. I was uh, like my first seminar at Stony Brook, like the first meeting of it, we had gotten a reading assignment like beforehand, which was, you know, read the first three books of Boethius or something. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> In the original Latin, please. Well, I'm <laughs> yeah. getting there. I'm getting there. So we didn't so have Tom Christensen on speed dial. <laughs> so this was a a graduate class with both masters and doctoral students from musicology and music theory in it, and there was a very very senior musicology person in this class who, as we started talking about it, comes out and goes. Well, I went back and I looked at the original Latin for this passage because I was wondering, and like, you know, starts oh. expounding upon the nuances of translating the actual oh. Latin. And I was like, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> what is even happening here? Like, I was like, is this what's expected of me? Oh my God. It was, it was the exact same feeling though. It yeah. was, you know, it, it was the, do I belong? You know, mm -hmm. it was, is, is this actually for me? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I feel like we need to remind people that, yes, it is for you. Yeah. yeah. You know, and maybe we give newcomers like a softer landing than late, late Beethoven or reading original Latin. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, can, can we maybe not gatekeep quite as hard, please, <laughs> right. is I think yeah. the takeaway from that.
Yeah. Now my question is, how does, how do you acknowledge that kind of imposter syndrome that you have as an individual to your students? Because Mm -hmm. our students have that same feeling, Mm -hmm. right? They, they had this feeling like, you know, I'm I'm not going to be good enough or they, they might feel like I can't let on how I'm struggling to my peers or to my professors. Do the professors know exactly how you're doing? It's not a, it's not a <laughs> mystery to us at all. Yeah. And and we also have, as I think, as theory instructors, this kind of gatekeeper mentality. Like theory mm. is the gatekeeper for students to get into, you know, advanced theory or just you know advancing into their whatever degree it is. So how can you relate that that own imposter syndrome that you feel? to your students and how does that maybe empower them if you can be kind of vulnerable enough to do that? I think that's the key. I think that's the key. I think you have to make yourself vulnerable. And, you know, I've, I've made it my mission to, to do that, to talk about things like that. I think it's easier with grad students. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think it's easier to say to a graduate student, you know, I understand why you're having problems writing this document or, you know, let me tell you about the struggles that I've had with procrastination or, you know, whatever. Um, And or or, you know, if a student comes in and says, well, I'm supposed to be giving this presentation, but I'm really scared because I don't think I know anything. You know, it's like, okay, let's have this conversation. So I I think it's really important to not just talk about things in the abstract and say, you know, well, some people find that they feel this way. It's it's much more powerful if you can say, here's how I feel and here's, you know, the mental pickup that I try to give myself in order mm-hmm. to get past it. Um, you know, and I think I've, I've been teaching freshmen uh, for in the undergraduate curriculum mm-hmm. for a long time. And the freshmen end up having some of the same feelings, especially mm-hmm. the am I supposed to be here? Um, you know, and when when that comes out, it's usually like week seven or eight of fall semester of their first semester. And, you know, maybe they haven't been doing all the work they've been supposed to do and suddenly things are piling up and they have exams and maybe they're not doing as well in their lessons and they're having, you know, they're struggling with things. Um, And you can sort of see that deer in the headlights kind of is, is college for me? Am I supposed to be here? And I really tried to reach out to students who I saw were, were experiencing that or who I felt might be. And, you know, the same thing, like, what what is it that's not working for you? How can, you know, w- let's brainstorm ways of fixing this. Um, you know, just trying to show them that, that somebody recognizes what they're thinking and that it's okay that they're thinking that. And that just because they're thinking it doesn't mean it's true. Mm. So Mm. I think think it is really important to reach out and to talk to people about things like that. I think that's great. Totally. Yeah. So 2020 was actually a really big year for you because you also edited and were a contributor to the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy. So can you tell us about that project and maybe, you know, what it's like to be an editor on a project like that, which is a huge... It's a huge text, a, a huge volume. So first of all, thank you for that contribution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank Second, you. Can you talk about that project? 
Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd been talking with Rutledge about doing some kind of a pedagogy book. And I, I wanted to do it because it's something I feel very strongly about, but I was also sort of really reluctant to, to put another like Norton guide to music theory pedagogy, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I forget what the official name of it is. It's behind me on the, <laughs> on my bookshelf. Um, teaching but, music theory. Right? Teaching music theory. Thank you. Um, because they did such an amazing job with that volume. I was, you know, it's, that's an incredible volume and I wanted to do something different. And so it was literally a shower thought you know, it was it was one of those things where, you know, you're sort of in the shower and going, do, 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 do. hey, what if I did this? And, you know, so I proposed this idea of like lesson plans that can immediately be put into practice. And I proposed that to the editor at Rutledge and she was really skeptical at first. And especially when I started talking about, you know, we'll have like 65 of them. <laughs> you know, she was like, what? <laughs> um, but I, I, I managed to convince her to let me try. And, um, I put out like a general call and I, the, the call was basically, um, think about the lesson that you look forward to teaching, you know, think about, think about the, the lesson that you're proudest of that the students remember and talk about, you know, afterwards, um, and that, you know, you know, sort of reaches the students and impacts the way that they think, write that lesson up, send it to me. And so I just, I asked for proposals, you know, just like the topic and a general idea of what you do. And honestly, I didn't know what I was going to get. I kind of thought maybe I'll get like 50 or 60 and, you know, maybe I'll be able to pick like 50 that are worth putting in the book. I got over 200 proposals wow. hmm. and, you know, and so then it became like, balancing topics and balancing mm -hmm. approaches and balancing, you know, form versus oral skills versus chromatic harmony versus, you know, fundamentals and like trying to make sure that, um, that different topics were represented, but also it was a very conscious thought to make sure that there was a good gender balance in the book mm -hmm. that, um, in authors and in repertory, um, that there was um, a balance of like institutions that people came from because teaching at a community college is different than teaching at a state school is different than teaching at a liberal arts university. You know, it's mm -hmm. so, so I wanted to make sure that there, that as many sort of perspectives as possible were, were represented. And um, the book ended up uh, with, um, about 70 chapters and it, it I, I had to herd a lot of cats i'll just <laughs> i'll say that but but in general um everyone that contributed did a phenomenal job you know and and it it, it was a lot of herding cats but most of the cats were pretty well behaved um <laughs> you know and and because with that many authors, if if one person yeah. isn't doing something, it holds everything up, you know, mm -hmm. and um, and so I was really fortunate that the folks who 
who had proposed things really wanted to write the chapters. They were short, so it didn't take them a lot of time. They were willing to hear like feedback and, you know, would you be willing to change this example for something else? And um, so it was, it was an incredible amount of work, but it was also so, so, so rewarding to work with my colleagues in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also to work with some grad students. There's, there's grad students who have lesson plans in there. Um, and, you know, so it was just, it was so amazing to work with those folks. And um, I'm just, I'm really proud of it. And I, you know, the, there's the book, there's the website, there's the materials that everyone put together and people made their handouts and assignments and, you know, all kinds of materials available for people to use. And I just, I really hope people take advantage of it. Mm. Um, it was, it, I enjoyed doing it. I learned a lot. That's I like great. when I learn things. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to include yeah. some of the information about that at the end, um, if possible, mm -hmm. so that people can definitely check it out. And even some of the teachers, like, for example, mm -hmm. Akira Sato, who we just interviewed, some of the high school AP theory teachers, I'm sure they would be um, interested in some of those materials. I mean, what yeah. a goldmine of information and resources and handouts and lessons and all that kind of stuff. It's great. It's tremendous. I mean, it covers everything from fundamentals through you know, 20th century through, you know, yeah. it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's a great and there's resource. A, there's a few sort of more speculative articles like about curriculum design and that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. for the most part, it's, you know, here's a topic, here's the lesson, here's what you can do in one, two, three classes to, to teach this material. Is there a particular lesson that uh, you've implemented into your own teaching? Oh boy. Um, so here's the dirty little secret. Um, I've used almost all of them. <laughs> so this was just a ploy. Uh, yeah. so, so you wouldn't have to write lesson plans for exactly, a whole year. Exactly. No, this is, that's, that's what I, I joked about at the beginning was like this way I have all these lesson plans and I'm done, you know? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, no, honestly, um, I, I have used many, many, many of the lesson plans. One of them, I will admit, I used straight from the proposal. Like, I got the proposal, and it was detailed enough that I was like, I'm actually teaching that topic tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I like that is already on my schedule for tomorrow. I am teaching that topic. I'm going to see if this works. And it worked brilliantly. And I was like, this is a must have in the book yeah. because it was fantastic. Um, yeah, no, it was I've I've used I've used a bunch of things. And, you know, that even the things that I haven't used have taught me something about like, um, just classroom management or, right. how, you know, how, how different people think about like introducing material, reinforcing material, working with things. So everything has been, has had some kind of an effect on the way I think and teach. I think that's so great because my wife is a middle school choir director and she's, she's an educator and she just doesn't understand how you, know, you can be a college professor 
and have maybe taken one class on pedagogy and, and if, music theory is one lucky, of the worst, right? Yeah, if you're lucky, yeah. you know, maybe mm -hmm. two and no, and in, it's the same kind of thing where you're, you're, it goes back to this imposter syndrome where you're just expected to be able to teach, you know, these courses. And, mm -hmm. you know, I never learned how to make a lesson plan in college. I never learned, you know, any of that stuff. It was all just, well, you know, the material and you just say it. Um, so this is so... <laughs> Which is the worst thing that you can do. <laughs> it's, it turns out that doesn't work that well. It doesn't work yeah, very well. Yeah. So I, I think that's wonderful. And I think that needs mm -hmm. to happen more. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, we, we don't get prepared. You know, that's, that's one of the things that I was really proud about at Michigan State was that we had like a year long music theory pedagogy class. Mm -hmm. And so our students came out really prepared, you know, they had engaged with the scholarship of teaching and learning literature, they had had a whole bunch of teaching experiences in the class you know, and or in their teaching um, for the for the undergraduate curriculum. Um, and we, you know, it is a process. You have to learn how to pace a class. You have to learn how to introduce material. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, so you can't just walk in and teach like you were taught. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, that's a model that has been used mm -hmm. and i'm really happy to contribute to getting us away from that model to actually thinking about how we're teaching and what we're doing um so yeah so that was i mean that's the nefarious goal right mm -hmm. is for <laughs> for someone to pick up the book and go there isn't a single chapter in here that talks about lecturing. <laughs> yes. Where's the sage on the stage chapter? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and of course, the sage on the stage isn't likely to pick up a book on pedagogy, unfortunately, but maybe if it hits them on the head, you know, and falls open to a chapter, they might peruse it. So that was that was the goal. If you know, if, if a couple people learn how to pace a class, how to, you know, present material, how to, uh, you know, engage students in their own learning process, then it was all worth it. Absolutely. I had the absolute privilege of having a chat on the phone the other day with Jenny Snodgrass. That's always a privilege. And um, she said at one point in that conversation that she was like, I feel like pedagogy is getting its day. Mm -hmm. It's it's like people are starting to talk about it. It's becoming a, a more regularly included part of our scholarship, of our research, mm -hmm. of what we do. And I really thought about the last maybe 10 15 years, I've seen such a change. When I was preparing to write my dissertation, I had two different mentors. You know, I, I debated writing on a pedagogy topic and maybe partnering with some music ed colleagues to do some research in that area. And I had two different mentors tell me, don't do it. You, you know, you'll have a hard time getting a job. You you need to write either an analysis dissertation or a history of theory dissertation, which is what I ultimately did. And I don't necessarily regret that choice, but it does make me sad that at that time, you know, it they they said in many ways for two reasons. First of all, it's not taken as seriously. And secondly, as a woman, you can't take that risk. And the mm -hmm. thing is <laughs> that 
you know, I think that actually was unfortunately really good advice. And I'm so glad that that might be changing now. I'm yeah. it's great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, again, I don't, I don't want to out anybody without their consent, but a well-known female scholar um, once told me that she had the same advice given to her mm-hmm. that, you know, this is, this is someone who's a little bit more senior than I am. Um, that she had the same advice given to her that she should not write on pedagogy because she wouldn't be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And she made the same decision and wrote on something else. Um, and I just, I think that that's really, really unfortunate. It um, is. Yep. But it, it does make me happy that pedagogy is being taken more seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, um, the music, the, pedagogy interest group at um, the SMT conference, the virtual SMT conference had something like 125 people come to the interest group meeting, which was amazing. And, you know, there were like three other sessions on pedagogy on the conference Mm -hmm. that, you know, we didn't sponsor that came that, (laughs) you know, that that grew spontaneously. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I feel like pedagogy is, like you said, being taken more seriously. I love seeing that. And, you know, <laughs> uh, let me put in a little plug. If anyone wants to come at, to work with me at UBC on a pedagogy oriented topic, <laughs> <All right. laughs> I will, I will support that, you know, and I, I will let you write the dissertation you want to write. That's great. That's great it to is. hear. Hopefully that finds some listeners that, that are intrigued. I'm sure there are people out there that are listening that, that are thinking about that right now in this moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, half, half of what we do is teaching. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, At and least. yeah, over half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. At least half. And, you know, and it's also when you when you when you listen to kids in the core curriculum complain about theory it's because they're not seeing the relevance it's because they're not seeing how mm-hmm. things relate to each other that's all pedagogy we can change the discipline and change how the discipline is perceived by being effective communicators and that's just pedagogy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely you know, one of the pedagogy topic I, I kind of want to hit on because I know you've ta- I've heard you talk about it is is cognition, specifically mm-hmm. working memory and um, and all that because that's another mm-hmm. area like sightseeing and dictation where usually you don't learn about working memory and how your mind works and and how you chunk things. It's oh, you just play the melody and you try to give some tips and you get it or you don't, right? Um, there's all this research <laughs> being done yeah. in neuroscience and all these things. And of course, it's separated from theory in many ways. It's kind of hard for us to get into it. But you've done some really great work in bringing those concepts and just understanding how the mind works and the, oh, the, uh, the, the uh, central executive and all these things. Mm-hmm. And could you just give us just a little, a little bit of kind of how that works and why that's helpful for us as oral skills <laughs> teachers? Um, and it's not just oral skills, it's, you know, written theory also. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so basically the, <laughs> the sort of 
pop science explanation. Somebody who understands this is going to listen and be like, oh, God. <laughs> but <you> know, <laughs> the, the, the way I think about it is that there's basically like a little dude in your brain who's in charge of allocating resources, right? And so he's the executive control. And so information comes in and the executive control decides, is this important information? If so, what do I do with it? And so, you know, the, the way things can go wrong with that is um, if there's too much information coming in, the executive control is just like throwing things everywhere and it can't figure out where the information needs to go, right? Um, or if it, you know, short circuits and goes, this is not an important piece of information and throws it away and then focuses on something that isn't important, but sort of obsesses mm -hmm. over it. Um, and so the, where this comes into play, you know, for something like aural skills or something like music fundamentals, where it's almost, especially fundamentals, it's almost like algorithmic, you know, you, there's, there's processes you can follow to spell an interval. There's processes you can follow to spell a chord. If your executive control short circuits at exactly the wrong moment, you've lost all the progress that you've made in uh, trying to achieve whatever that goal is. And, you know, the same thing is true for, for aural skills, where if you're paying attention to the wrong thing as you're singing or as you're taking a dictation or something like that, you're you're not able to sort of see the whole picture because you're th you're obsessing about the wrong thing you're thinking about the wrong thing so being aware of like how we how we process information what can go wrong while we're processing information and you know what we can do about it i think is really really important and one of the things that I've realized is that the um, that working memory deficits can be really, really, really problematic for especially at the beginning level of, you know, learning fundamentals, learning like beginning aural skills, because they're the, the cognitive load of what they're learning is so high, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's so high. And if if we you know, if I ask you to spell a major third above D, you go, boom, F sharp, right? That's, there's not a, did I get that right? Yes, okay. Um, <laughs> you can always edit it out. So okay, fine. okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, there isn't a process. We don't have to go through a process. And I think that we forget that students for whom this is new information have to go, okay, D, D, all right, where's D on the staff? Okay, that's what D looks like, all right key signature for D is, okay, uh, circle of fifths, you know, and there's like all of these steps that they have to go through. Um, and so that means that the cognitive load of asking someone a major third above D is huge when it's brand new information. Um, and so thinking about ways to acknowledge this, to, to work with it, to recognize when students are having problems with that and to try to, you know, sort of identify and offer solutions. Um, that's been something that I've been really focusing on. You know, it's so my, my, my pet theory that I haven't proven yet but I'm going to, is that um, students who have working memory difficulties 
are especially disadvantaged in sort of core curriculum theory courses, mm -hmm. um, simply because the processing power is a little bit diminished and they have to work a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm planning on doing one of these days is um, taking an incoming class of freshmen, giving them a working memory battery of tests and just testing their working memory mm -hmm. and then putting that away and not looking at it and teaching the classes, but taking very careful notes about what students struggle with, who's struggling with it, you know, and mm -hmm. sort of looking for information about, you know, okay, so this student was struggling with interval inversions and this student was struggling with chord inversions. And then going back after everything is done and trying to correlate that to where they had issues mm. with working memory. Um, that would be fascinating. Yeah. I would be so interested to see how that turns out. Because there's different types of working memory, too. There's like the phonological loop, which remembers, you know, words and language. But I think I my theory is that students who have trouble with what's called the visuospatial uh, sketch pad, the, you know, the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're going to run into problems with notation, with chord inversion, with interval inversion, with with mm. things that involve like rotations, mm. possibly with 20th century, you know, and so this is this is something that I strongly, strongly believe is true. And one of these days, I'm going to get to do the study that proves it. That's awesome. Well, if you need some other like theory one classes, yeah, sign us <laughs> as up. Picks, I'm in. Absolutely. absolutely. The largest one in the country. <laughs> yeah. Let me, yeah. I, I may be tapping you because this is, you know, the yeah, more Ben's data got that, like yeah. 240 kids in his room. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You'd have tons of, of data right there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me know. I'm, I'm open to collaborate, especially in something that it sounds like will really move, move oh, yeah, this sub-discipline forward. I mean, I really yeah. relate to that visual spatial part that you were just talking about. Mm. Um, I was talking to a student today. I've only done one-on-one -on -one office hours, but, uh, I was talking about how I always prefer to hear something first and then look at it later. And I was talking about that because this student was the opposite. And I said, you probably prefer to look at something first and then hear it later. And I said, well, there's so many different ways of processing this particular musical passage. Like for me, I would like to hear it first and I would right. understand it better first that way. And it was like, whoa, mind equals blown kind of moment, you know, I was like, yeah, there's so many different ways that people could possibly understand this, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've always been very weak on my, on my visual spatial. It took me like five years to actually be able to navigate just the, the music building. I don't know <laughs> so. It is a confusing building. It is very confusing. Yeah. credit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we unfortunately are coming to the end of our time. This has just been such a blast. We've hit on so many yes. wonderful topics, um, but we'd like to finish up with just some rapid fire questions. All right. This is, okay. This is the part takes. I'm dreading. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just so you know, this is the part I'm dreading. I'm, I'm not good under pressure. <laughs> we need to have people rapid fire us sometime. Huh? We can change it up. <laughs> All right. So Ben, Jen, do you know what you're going to ask? I'm ready. All right, Jen, why don't, uh, you, why don't you go first? Okay. All right. So the next time you teach Music Theory 1, what is one thing you're going to do differently? Um, less music by dead white German males. I love it. Mm. Me too. Yeah. That's on my list as well. Yep. Totally. Um, 
you know, you can you can teach notation, you can teach a lot of different things using any repertory and, um, mm -hmm. you know, and not just tonal music either. You can you can include 20th century, you can include post tonal mm -hmm. 21st century. There's you can if you if you expand their idea of the repertory that early, it becomes easier for them, I feel like as they move through you know, when they mm -hmm. get to a post-tonal class or something like that, because they've had, they've experienced it already in mm -hmm. a, you know, in, in, as they've gone. So yeah, that's the, that's the thing that I'm going to do. That's great. Totally. Okay. My question is now having looked at over 200 lesson plans, plus all of your previous lesson plans and conversations with other people at SMTs and interest group meetings, et cetera, best lesson to teach from Levy and Handel like topic or favorite topic yeah let's go favorite topic oh to god teach. oh boy <laughs> um okay i'm the uh i'm a big fan of wacky modulations Ooh, <laughs> Me too. yeah okay <laughs> you know so like at like and it, the, the problem is that they appear so rarely that it's almost not worth doing it except that i love the topic so yeah. you know common tone modulations or enharmonic mm. reinterpretations mm. of uh, german augmented six chords or you know whatever yeah. um and sort of you know, I, I kind of love the experience of playing something for students and having it take that left turn and just seeing their reactions where they kind of go, what just happened? You know, <laughs> like their, their eyes get really big and they kind of, and I feel like that makes them curious about how, how it works. And that's kind of a payoff for all of the stuff that they've had to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. Yeah, so I would, I maybe that I could, but I could probably list twenty other things. So I'll <laughs> that's great. All right, and so mine, mine is just real quick, but perhaps the most controversial: five six four or one six four. Oh Lord, you're really gonna make me take a stand. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'm I'm a five six four person. But it's interesting because I was a Casca Payne baby. I learned theory from Casca Payne. And so I was I was a one six four person. And when I first learned about the credential six four, you know, five six four dash five three thing, I was like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And then it clicked and I went, Oh my god, the other thing doesn't make any sense. <laughs> So, yeah, so I think I'm a, a function over spelling person. Very good. Very good. Mm -hmm. Well, as we're finishing up, uh, maybe just kind of uh, close this out by just letting us know kind of what um, a little bit maybe about uh, the Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, kind of maybe uh, kind of where we can learn more about that and maybe some other projects you have working on. And then also just where um, can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, what you're up to? Um, okay, so the uh, Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, um, obviously you can buy it on Amazon or through the Rutledge uh, website. Um, there's a website which is actually available at, let me get this right, rctmtp.com. Rutledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy. I'm very clever. Um, 
And that is where all the links to all of the supplemental materials are for the book. And I, I really, really hope that people know that that exists because it's an amazing set of resources that go along with every amazing lesson plan that's in the book. Um, so that's available there. And um, if anyone is interested in contacting me, my email address is lee.vanhandle at ubc.ca. And anyone is welcome to reach out to me and ask questions. It may even end up on the Ask Dr. Van blog. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.